Welcome to the Period Story Podcast, the podcast where we get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods. We chat with women about their period story, their first period, their journey ever since, and we open up a conversation to help break taboos and stigmas around menstruation. I'm your host, Denise Brothers. I'm a yoga teacher and registered nutritionist specializing in women's health, hormones, and the menstrual cycle. I'm also the author of You Can Have a Better Period, the book Publishers Weekly calls an empowering debut, an informative, refreshing take on women's health. It's available from Amazon, Bookshop, and anywhere else you purchase books. You have to listen to today's episode with Satiria Venable, the founder and CEO of the Firebird Foundation. Satiria shares her story of navigating life with very heavy periods, hemorrhaging, altitude-associated bleeding, and fibroids. Satiria's story is very powerful, and she has grown the Fibroid Foundation out of her own very painful experiences, something she describes as very cathartic. Enjoy today's show. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Um, You are doing really incredible work in the fibroid space, and I've wanted to have you on the show for a while. So I'm happy that we have this opportunity to have this conversation. So let's get into the story of your very first period. Okay, well, thanks so much for having me, Lanise. I uh, consider you a rock star, and you're one of our most valued alliance partners. So I'm really grateful for your partnership across the pond and your friendship. Um, So my period story, I'm so glad that you're hosting this podcast because this is such an important question in my opinion, because I think that there is, it's a very personal journey and it is not always framed in a positive light. And so it can carry, I think, um, some serious emotional baggage for a young person experiencing puberty. Um, And my journey was much like what I've just described. I, it was a little funny, actually. My mom uh, is an older parent. So she had me at 37. So she was not as familiar with the most current period products at the time. And it had been so far removed from her experience that it was just kind of humorous. So I had pain on my right side uh, about a month before my 12th birthday. And my mother thought I was having an appendicitis attack. (laughs) And And I was ovulating. Um, you know, we found out two weeks later that I was ovulating. So my period started. Um, I don't remember really bad cramps the first period, but my mom handed me this enormous sanitary napkin that was like an inch plus thick. And then she gave me a belt to go with it. And I was like, what in the hell is this? <laughs> and, you know, I was like, just a few days before my 12th birthday. And I was trying to figure out, you know, I think I was in like the seventh grade and I was trying to figure out this belt and this pad and wondering why in the world anybody would want to have to deal with all of this. And it was just really awkward. I think that's the best word um, I can think of to describe my experience because 
I would catch the bus to school, public transportation. And I remember distinctly standing on the bus, you know, first or first few period experiences and feeling very exposed and wondering if people knew or just not wanting to have to deal with it. And then um, I also remember being in school and not really feeling comfortable excusing myself to go to the bathroom, um, probably as frequently as I should. So it was, it was, I, I think, not ideal for really uplifting menstruation, but that was my my first or first couple of period experiences. Wow. So I want to really ask about the sanitary belt, because you're the first guest that I've spoken to that has used a sanitary belt. Maybe some others have, but they didn't mention it. And I'm fascinated by that because actually I went to the Vagina Museum here in London <laughs> earlier in the summer. And I actually learned that it was the belt was originated by, by a Black woman. And they went through the whole history of it. So, and then they had they had an example there. And I just remember looking at it with incomplete fascination because it just seems so foreign to compared to what we have on the market now. So can you just talk a little bit more about how how it works using the belt? It it seems far away from me as well because I didn't use it for long because I hated it. I went and found um, some more current products, but it was like a woven kind of, it wasn't gauze. It was more like a cotton woven um, panty that you step into and the sides were just like, and a little less than an inch wide and they went kind of up over your hips and kind of like a thong kind of shape to hold the sanitary the, the pad in place um and you would wear that under your underpants oh my. and so you know it, and it didn't do a great job of holding the pad in place I mean because you know you'd have little spill over here and a little spill over there but uh and then the pad had long gauze pieces that were flat that extended like five or six inches out from the pad itself in both directions. So you had this, it kind of felt almost like it was coming up to your belly button and all the way up in the back because of those, those kind of, they were almost kind of like see-through. It was what, so there was a huge cotton section or whatever that was that was the base of the pad. And then whatever they wrapped the pad in, they had extensions that went far off the ends in the front and the back that kind of came up. And so you'd have all of this going on and then your underpants on top of it. It was, (laughs) it gives me a headache just thinking about it. Um, And so this is what your mom gave you when you had your first period. And did she explain to you what was going on? Did she talk to you about her experience of her period to give you a little bit more kind of background about what to expect? She didn't talk much about having your first period and what that means, but she did tell me all the horrible stuff. Like I had seen, so I guess when my period started, my mother was 49. And I had seen her have some very just painful period experiences. 
And she told me about how horrible her cramps had been when her period started, which uh, I I think she meant well, but, you know, I think that added to the horror of it all. So you had this experience where you were given the this belt and a big bulky pad and then you went and found something that was a little better for you. Mm-hmm. And then how did you learn more about periods and ovulation and all everything to do with menstrual health? From my friends in school, um, I remember my friend in the sixth grade who was the first person that I knew to start her period. And so we were all kind of like in awe, like, oh, wow. You know, and we thought at that time that that was something we wanted to be in that club, you know, like <laughs> have a period. Um, and then once my period started, I, I, I'm, I'm a person who I felt my ovulation every single month. Um, and so I started to learn my body. It would tell me that, okay, you're ovulating right, ovulating left, two weeks later, period's going to start. Um, and I also had friends who had really bad cramps like me. So one of my friends would have some really strong Motrin, not the over-the-counter, but, um, you know, um, prescription Motrin. And she would give it to us because our cramps were that bad. She would give us the Motrin in school. We were in school popping (laughs) Motrin um, (laughs) for the cramps. So we would, amongst us, my little core unit of friends, the ones that had really bad cramps would share information. And that's how I learned to uh, adapt to it and understand what was happening. But my general expectation, sadly, was that it was going to be terrible. And that's what it was because of what I had seen and the family stories that went back to my great-grandmother of terrible periods. So your periods, you had that expectation and then your periods were terrible. So you mentioned really bad cramps. Was it what else about your period was not so great? Um, I think it was the the social impact, the awkwardness. I I specifically remember being fifteen and going on a date. I think I was almost sixteen, and I had this cute pair of white shorts that I wanted to wear that I had just gotten, and I was out at the barbecue and my bleeding got worse than I anticipated. And I didn't bleed through the shorts, but the just panic around navigating trips to the bathroom and being in the company of a guy that I was interested in and trying to have fun with my friends, but also having this experience was just really um, challenging and not a feel-good moment. Hmm. And how did you resolve the situation? I befriended a woman who, a a girl at the time who was with me, who was dating another uh, guy that was there. And she kind of like accompanied me to the bathroom to make it seem not as obvious uh, that I had a a purpose for going there rather than us just kind of having girl talk. Um, And and she really helped me through that moment. Um, 
at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And so you you were bleeding heavily. And mm-hmm. so were heavy periods also another feature of your kind of menstrual life? Always. Um, my periods were horrible. The first day or two when my cervix would open, my periods would, it was like contractions. Um, and I would get so sick that I would vomit. Um the, and I couldn't get too hot or too cold because that would cause me to be nauseous. And I would just have to sleep it off after I took some over-the-counter medication, like the first, maybe the first or second day. And then um, I wouldn't be in, in pain, but I'd be dealing with heavy menstrual bleeding. And I remember not having a a sensitive ear in my high school teachers in like the ninth, 10th grade, if I needed to leave school to go home because I was so sick from um, the period pain. Um, So it it just was, it was, it was difficult. And was that every single period? Every single period, every single one, up until I started the birth control pill at 18. And then my cramping, the the contraction cramping that came in waves of pain from the time my period started through that time, that subsided um, greatly. Okay, so the timeline was basically you got your period when you were in grade six, sixth grade. So that's seventh grade, sorry. And so that was about, what, 11, 12 years old? Yes. And so... From 11, 12, all the way until 18, mm-hmm. every single period, you would be missing school, vomiting, having to take all of these heavy prescription drugs mm-hmm. to manage your period. Did you go to the doctor? Did you, you know, did you have conversations with your mom about how to manage your period pain and the heavy bleeding? No. I didn't go to the doctor. I my mom would come home from work and I'd be in the bed curled up in a ball from having left school and she'd just be like, Oh, poor baby, what do you need? And that was the <laughs> that was the extent of the conversation. It was like, okay, this is life. Um right. yeah. Which and- makes me kind of sad actually, because she didn't have the tools that we have now to frame that experience differently. Hmm. That kind of reminds me of, of the experience of my mom because, you know, my family, we have really heavy periods, painful periods that just runs in the family as well. And so my mom, she would have these really long, long, kind of almost endless periods. We know now that she, she had fibroids mm-hmm. and really painful periods and she just thought it was normal because that was the experience of of the women in her family and that's kind of like just this these stories that were passed down like well this is just part of having a period and it's so fascinating that now we have all the information now to kind of break break that cycle exactly i I totally agree. It's um, really just, it was the norm, you know, um, 
my mom had an experience of just always suffering. And we just thought that that was just the way life was going to be Mm. and um, just powered through it. And, uh, you know, existing in workspaces and school spaces and pain was seemingly our plight. Mm. And so going back to when you were 18, you went on the pill and what was your experience of going on the pill? My experience of going on the pill was great because I could, and I knew when my period was going to start, I could plan for it better. Um, I wasn't in as much pain and it made my periods a little lighter. So that made life, that worked for quite a few years until it didn't. Okay. So that's interesting. So there's a narrative at the moment about the pill and a lot more people are realizing some of the side effects, but mm-hmm. for you, the pill worked and it did what the doctor said it was going to do for you for, for how many years? And then just say a little bit more about what you said about it worked until it didn't. Sure. So, you know, those moments in life, kind of like with me standing on the bus when I first started my period, there are things that happen in life where you remember exactly where you were. And um, I think I took the pill off and on from like 18 to 31. Um, and it was mainly to control bleeding um, for my heavy menstrual bleeding. So I was living in Chicago and I was walking toward the bus stop to go to work. I was 31 and I felt blood and it was not time for my period to start. And I was on the pill at the time and that was breakthrough bleeding. And that was my first experience of breakthrough bleeding. And I thought in my mind that because I'm always trying to figure out how to resolve this. What can I do? And uh, I thought, okay, I think that if the pill's not working anymore, that my body can hold the blood back between periods better than the pill can. So I stopped the pills without consulting a doctor, without anything else. Well, I was right about the fact that my body could hold the blood back during periods. So I stopped the pill, I had a period, and then I my I didn't have any breakthrough bleeding. But when the period started after that, without any of the medication from the pill in my body, I hemorrhaged for two and a half months. <gasps> I had to have a surgery two and a half months later to remove what they call a pedunculated fibroid, which was only two centimeters, but my body was trying to flush it out. And I, my hemoglobin went down to, I think seven, like between six and seven, which is about half of what you're supposed to have in your body. And I was bleeding through a bag of pads almost every day. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. And what was the effect of that two and a half months on you emotionally? It was horrifying um, because I, I didn't know. I was learning about anemia. I didn't understand anemia. I didn't understand why I was having difficulty breathing. I 
just was, and again, I still had that mindset from earlier in life of just trying to power through. So I was still trying to go to work um, and I was still trying to figure out ways to raise my hemoglobin. I was drinking beet and carrot juice and taking iron supplements and still trying to plan to go on a vacation, which sounds crazy. I actually did go on the vacation. So this is an interesting story if we have time. So I worked with a napropath who practically saved my life, Dr. Pittman. And she would adjust my body head to toe during this time to reduce the bleeding uh, because we were trying to stabilize the bleeding. So we got the bleeding under control. And then it was about raising my hemoglobin because I was so anemic. And I wanted to go on this trip. Oh, my goodness. So we she said, OK, if your hemoglobin gets to nine, you can go on the trip. But if it's below nine, you cannot go. So I'm drinking beet and carrot juice and I, every day and taking uh, a, an iron supplement that was uh, organic so that it didn't constipate me. So I got my hemoglobin up. We got the bleeding to stop. I get on the plane. And unbeknownst to me, I was going to a higher altitude. Well, naturally in the plane, but my ultimate destination was a higher altitude. One hour into the flight, I started bleeding because of the altitude. And when I got to my destination, which was Colorado, the hemorrhaging started and it would not stop. So I had no experience of uh, altitude associated bleeding prior to that time. So long story short, I I was back in Chicago a day later. I had to leave. I had to come back. And as soon as I got off the plane in Chicago and took in a breath of air when I deplaned, I I started feeling better because I wasn't at that higher altitude that was thinning my blood that was making me bleed. But then after that, I still had to have another surgery. It was, it was, it was an absolute mess. I mean, just I want to talk a little bit about altitude associated bleeding because I know that there are some listeners who would never have heard of that before. So when you go to different altitudes, a higher altitude, you, the body needs more oxygen in order to breathe. Mm-hmm. And if you already have low hemoglobin, so the protein that pushes oxygen through the blood, talk a little bit about the link between the bleeding and the hemoglobin and the altitude. Well, you actually described it better than I've ever heard it described before. Um, Because my doctor at the time said, I can't help you. You just need to come back to Chicago. But I, because you're, you know, as you mentioned, your blood thins because of the altitude to adjust to the higher altitude, you are really susceptible to more bleeding. And I really, when I got to Colorado, my symptoms were worse because of the altitude. I actually was seeing stars, which I had never seen before. Like my hemoglobin was that low. I was walking in the grocery store looking for more pads because I hadn't brought enough because I had stopped you know, bleeding before I left. And I was walking in the grocery store seeing stars because my I was losing that much blood that fast and becoming anemic again. Um, so it was very scary. And you went back to Chicago and then you had a sh- another surgery. 
shortly mm-hmm. after that. And what was that surgery for? That was my second fibroid surgery, and it was a laparoscopy um, where they enter your vagina and loop out with a heated implement the fibroid. And it was a two centimeter small fibroid that was extending into my uterine cavity that my body was trying to flush out. I had other fibroids, two other ones, but that was the the small two centimeter one was the the really um, troublemaker. And, And people think that when they hear fibroids, that it's the large ones that are the catalyst for all the bleeding. It doesn't have to be. It is contingent on the location Um, whether or not it's pushing on the wall of the uterus and opening up blood vessels, or in this case, it's extending into the uterine cavity, that it can wreak havoc even in small sizes. So talk a little bit more about your journey with fibroids. You have founded this amazing charity called the Fibroid Foundation, and you do incredible work, like truly incredible work. And, you know, I remember when I first you know, we first connected, I was so amazed because, you know, I have a personal experience of fibroid in that my mom had had surgery. She told me the other day about how she had a partial hysterectomy to remove her mm. a fibroid that was the size of a grapefruit. But wow. then she didn't know any more details. And I was asking her and asking her and she was like, like yeah, I had that partial hysterectomy and that was it. And I find that so mind blowing because, you know, it's, you know, I I just crave information, but I digress. So I am so curious about your journey with the fibroids, because, you know, when we stopped after your trip to Colorado, that was your second fibroid surgery. But when did you first learn that you had fibroids? I was 26. And even due to this intense family history, the bleeding got to be too much for even me. So I went to the doctor to find out what I could do. And she said, you have a fibroid. She didn't tell me what it was. She said, you had a have a fibroid. And I immediately thought cancer and felt like very fearful. And she said, the best treatment is a hysterectomy. And I was like, what? Like, the best treatment is a hysterectomy. I'm 26 years old, no kids. Like, And whether I have kids or not is a non-issue, which is something that I talk about all the time. It's like, what quality of life and keeping a body part, <laughs> um, you know, is, is the priority here. Uh, so I actually found another physician who told me that they could remove the fibroid laparoscopy through a laparoscopy, but they couldn't guarantee that they could close my uterus after they removed what was then, I think, about a five centimeter fibroid on top of my bladder. So we scheduled the surgery and they prepped me for the surgery and they tried to dilate my cervix prior to the surgery. And so I'm walking around the hospital trying to have my cervix dilate, which is one of the most agonizing experiences that I can ever describe. And I get in the surgery. This doctor didn't know what she was doing. She punctured my uterus with the implement and had to bring me out of surgery and no fibroids were were removed. So I had flown my family into town, 
prep for three months on medication for the surgery, was high as a kite from the drugs from the surgery, came out and they told me that nothing was done and we were at square one. So after that, naturally, I was incredibly fearful about surgeries, which is why I had that experience of the breakthrough bleeding and tried to figure it out on my own. Uh, The second surgery was successful, and I still didn't understand the correlation between diet and hormones and fibroid growth. Uh, So I was eating the same things. And so from my experience has been that after every procedure, nine months later, my body has grown more fibroids and that I'm experiencing more heavy menstrual bleeding just like before. So uh, I I went for five more years and powered through the bleeding until a doctor actually grabbed my hand and said, Satiri, you cannot continue to live like this. Um, and he was very kind. He's on our medical advisory board now, Dr. Malad at Northwestern in Chicago. And he drew me a picture of my of the surgery and how he was going to perform it. And he sent me to get an MRI. Until that point, with all the doctors I'd seen, I'd never had an MRI. And he explained to me that each fibroid has its own blood supply. And for him to be able to really perform a successful surgery, he would want to be able to see in 3D where the blood supply was and where every fibroid is. Because if you just utilize an ultrasound, the ultrasound, sometimes fibroids will hide and you can't see everything that's there. So that was very new information for me. It made perfect sense, but I was really a little sad and upset that it took all of those experiences for me to get to a comprehensive provider who cared about me as a patient and my experience as a patient and who would talk to me in a way that had a good bedside manner, which is, I think we don't talk enough about, um, and really wanted me to be well. He wasn't just treating symptoms or just trying to get a surgery done. He was looking at the overall picture. So he performed an open myomectomy, which is, it was a successful surgery, but it's also a very hard surgery on the body. And there's lots of emotions that come with being cut open your uterus lifted out of your body, the fibroids cut out, the uterus sewn back together and put back in. But he did that successfully. And then I had to deal with the emotional healing and being very tender for months and dealing with work and, you know, trying to to survive and getting reimbursements for work and being out of income for that eight weeks, six, eight weeks, whatever it was. So that was surgery number three. And of course, after that, I swore no more fibroid surgeries. I was like, no, there's no way. I became a pescatarian. I wasn't eating any meat, which for me is coming from a family where if if you shed one tear, somebody puts a pie in front of you. Um, <laughs> it's a huge like food-related family. And uh, so I stopped eating meat for seven years and... I was still having bleeding that was completely out of control. Being a pescatarian lengthened the regrowth significantly. 
which is um, an action that I wish I had known to take previously, but I still was facing another surgery. And at that time, I didn't want another myomectomy because I didn't want to deal with that abdominal incision and just anything intrusive. So I opted for embolization with another member of our medical advisory board. And I was fortunate in the fact that because I do this work and the foundation was active at that time, that it took me like a month to get into surgery with probably the top embolization or radiology expert in fibroids in the world. Um, and so he performed my my fourth and final fibroid surgery. But um, it's been a journey. I mean, I know of women who've had multiple myomectomies trying to conceive. And we, as women, deal with so much um, our bodies. Um, and it's considered our normal plight. Mm-hmm. And it, I think that's a topic that needs to be further explored and in terms of what the expectations are you know, and how society frames how women deal with pain. Mm. Um, I think it's a just a huge burden placed upon us that should not be. And it has overarching um, consequences on society. I think society doesn't fully grasp how everyone is affected when we are in pain and in pain chronically and and it becomes our normal walk of life supposedly or you know that's the expectation there um we need to and and I'm glad that you're we're having this conversation today because that reality needs to shift and we need to continue to talk about this because I don't want anyone, and that's why I started the Fibroid Foundation, is I don't want anyone to have to go through what I went through. Mm, hear, hear. I I completely agree. I mean, we're singing the same sheet here. Everything you said about, you know, ending this normalization, normalization of pain, I completely agree. You talked a lot about the emotional impact of the surgeries, the the heavy menstrual bleeding, the continual menstrual bleeding. If we kind of go back to our timeline, when did all of this stop for you? Um, a few years ago. Hmm. I what my last <laughs> hospital visit. <laughs> oh my goodness, was 2018. Um, I was experiencing bleeding and I had this crazy, not crazy, but I had this idea that if I stabilized my liver, I would be okay. So I did a celery juice cleanse. Well, that sent my whole body into shock and my hemoglobin again dipped to 6.2. Oh my. And I had to be transfused. Um, And that was my last hospital visit. Um, So I was transfused and sent home and I stopped the celery juice. And, um, you know, apart from some perimenopause symptoms, I've been okay. But um, I did use a medical therapy to get through perimenopause, which is a medicine to help control my period bleeding. Um, Had I not had that medication, which is used in Europe, but you have to request it practically in the United States. Um, And I I probably would have had to have a hysterectomy 
So fortunately, I have my uterus and, um, you know, it's uh, through platforms like yours. It's all about educating our sisters on how to have a better quality of life. Hmm. You mentioned medication. Is it trinexamic acid? Is. Yeah, so it that's is. quite easy to get here in the it's, UK. Oh, yeah, but not in the States. And yeah. and despite all the work that I do, I had never heard of it mm-hmm. until one of our board members said, Satiria, why, do why don't you get this? And so I, I had, I always select physicians who will work with me. And mm-hmm. so even my um, general practitioner, I asked her to prescribe it for me. She wasn't aware of it. She did some research. She said, sure, I'll prescribe that for you. And that's how I was able to get it. Wow. So you have had to be your own advocate this entire always, time. Always. And what I'm quite struck about is what you said about how you had to power through this. You, you know, you just kept going. You had to power through. And that doctor held your hand and said, it's enough. You know, mm-hmm. you need to, you know, this needs to end. Mm-hmm. And just talk a little bit about why you felt like you just had to push through. Well, I hadn't seen that had been my life experience. Like for me to get ahead, I felt like I needed to exceed expectations and always be present and reliable and perform well at my job. And, and I also it was a major and still am uh my family's very you know the person who is responsible for a lot of the financial um needs of our family and the thought of not working didn't even occur to me until i could barely walk um and so i think that that societal burden which came from generations back because you know, like I said, my my mom referenced the bleeding that my great grandmother had and my grandmother. And I watched my mother sit in agony. And my mother took me out in a snowstorm to get boots for school. And she had to double up on pads. And she I can't even imagine what agony she was in. But that that was, you know, those were the, the stories that I had, you know, had running in my mind. And so I I really sacrifice my well-being to meet others expectations and to have income um mm. I, I think those were the the major drivers and i'm so proud of younger generations who are more focused on self-care um that's one of the reasons why we really um make that a a, a focal point at the fibroid foundation is that you have to care for yourself and and I'm I'm glad that there are conversations taking place that are making employers take on the responsibility of participating mm-hmm. and participating in avenues to self-care for the people that work at their organizations. It's it's so incredibly important to be able to have a better quality of life overall. Hmm. So say a little bit more about the Fibroid Foundation. So you're the founder and the CEO and the work that you do is fantastic. You went to the White House, 
you know, you met the vice president. Talk a little bit more about the work you do and your vision for the future. Well, I I feel very fortunate to be able to ha- see the Fibre Foundation grow out of an experience that was so painful. And that is very cathartic for me personally. And uh, being able to actually speak with our community members and see how our information is helping them is probably at the height of of gratification for me um, when I when I think about the work that we do. So we really focus on four major areas, which are education and information for treatments. We focus on legislation. We initiated the advocacy efforts for the introduction of the fibroid bill, which will be $150 million of fibroid research funding um, here in the United States, which the hope is that that research will then parlay into other um, research efforts and provide more information globally. Because even though a lot of the work that we do is U.S.-based, the, the goal is definitely to have a global impact. Um, we bring the patient voice to research. So, so far, which I cannot believe, Lenise, um, I've co-authored 12 medical papers as a non-physician. And wow. we are um, focused on designing research studies as um, co-PIs uh, with our medical partners to bring forth the patient voice because the patient voice is pivotal in all of this. Um, and lastly, but not least, is innovation. We're always looking at ways, like I said, medical therapies, but the patient voice needs to be in that as well because the well-meaning uh, developers of the innovations don't have the experience most often of the uh, therapy and how life, you know, transpires when you're taking it, when you're preparing to take it or the surgery. Um, And so we always need the patient voice present. And I'm actually following in your footsteps and I'm writing a book called The Patient Voice. Oh, fantastic. I can't wait to read that. So we hope to, I hope to have that out next year. So fingers crossed. Fantastic. So if someone's listening to this and they suspect that they have fibroids, but they're kind of hitting a brick wall in terms of diagnosis and treatment, what would you say to them? I would say, keep the faith, find a trusted resource. Um, don't just take information wherever you find it because you're fatigued. I understand fatigue and I understand the fear of experiencing some of these symptoms, but make sure that the source that you find is verified, trusted, has reliable resources who are licensed, whether you go the holistic route um, and or the medical route. I advocate both. I think you should have Uh, what I call your toolkit of wellness providers that have medical expertise and holistic expertise, and both should have credentials that you really vet carefully. But um, find your, talk to people, find those resources, interview the physician, advocate for yourself. Don't be afraid to ask questions because you're, you're the expert in your body and you know what you want for yourself. So find that practitioner who's going to be 
skilled, but also kind and help you to accomplish your goals. And then also do what you need to do to build in that self-care practice into your life overall. Um, Try to get your partners engaged to bring them to appointments with you because that partner support is important. And for me personally, and a lot of other people, if you don't get that support from your partner, that's another area to explore um, so that you can be well overall. So a lot of what you're describing requires a lot of energy. And thinking back to your experience where you've just described pushing through and pushing through, that self-care piece you mentioned is really important to kind of preserve energy and rebuild. But what would you say to someone who says, like, that just sounds really hard. I'm really frustrated. What, what would you say to them? Try, if you're fatigued, and I, I get that, try to find a friend who can help carry that burden with you. Mm. Um, I have a, a, a dear friend who's a physician, and she had another friend who was experiencing some pretty serious medical issues. And even though that person who was sick was a physician, she went to the appointment with her to help her to navigate those waters. So, you know, find those friends. And and when you're not feeling well, the people that you rely on, you'll learn who the, who they are. Mm. You learn you will learn very quickly who those people are in your life who you can really depend on. Um it, that's another big eye opener. Mm. Uh but, you know, I understand fatigue, try to maybe take everything in bite-sized pieces and lean on organizations such as ours. We have a peer network um, where we're happy to do whatever we can to help you find the information you need, uh, connect you with our ambassadors so you can speak with them. And uh, I'm of the mind that there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. Like someone's gone through this already. There's information. We have information on YouTube. Look at that. And uh, we have a list of questions you can take to your doctor on our website and you can download those. And that's a good starting point, as well as our Fibroids Health Portal, where you can learn about treatment options. And, uh, you know, if you start there, you will have good information to be able to help you have a conversation with your, your physician. And I will also say that if your physician comes in and wants to have a conversation while you're in stirrups, ask them that you tell them rather that you would like to have a conversation when you're fully dressed. Mm. Um, that That is incredibly important for you to be able to have the comfort of having a conversation. You shouldn't have to do that in stirrups at any time. So much powerful information that you've shared and all of the resources that you mentioned will be linked in the show notes. So check those out um, to find out the resources that Soteria has just mentioned. So you've shared a really powerful emotional story. You've shared all of the fantastic work that you're doing with the Fibroid Foundation. What's the one thing that you want to leave our listeners with today? That you're powerful. You're absolutely powerful and that you can create life as you need it to be for you and that you don't have to suffer. You don't have to suffer. Fantastic. You are powerful. I love that. I really feel that 
Thank you so much for coming on the show today. For anyone who wants to find out more about Soteria and the Fibroid Foundation, please check the show notes. Please look at their Instagram, their YouTube, find out more, spread the word. Fibroids are incredibly common and really under-discussed, so please support their work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lenise. I love all the work that you're doing as well. And this has been probably my favorite, favorite conversation. So I'm so glad that this is going out into the sphere to help others. And I hope that you have continued success on all the wonderful work that you're doing. Thank you so much. For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram and Twitter on at periodstorypod or email us at hello at periodstorypod.com. I'm Lenise Brothers, and you've been listening to Period Story. Thank you so much for listening.